Well, let's turn together, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I'd like to call your attention to the half sheet that's in your bulletin called Transition Team Nominations. We are, in addition to getting nominations from staff and session, session wants to hear from the priesthood. And so this will be your opportunity to let us know who you think would be good to be on this team. The qualifications are listed there. This is a team starting in January that will be looking at a number of things, including who we are as a congregation, what our roots are, what our unique calling and wiring is as a body. Just like individual Christians, churches are not generic, they're unique in the kingdom. And in light of the church profile, that is, of who we are, what kind of pastor do we need in light of that? That's overall kind of what they'll be doing. So please do be thinking about who you'd like to nominate, if anyone. And uh, we'll be taking nominations both uh, today as well as next uh, Sunday, which will be the final day. Well, we talked about the Christmas tree last week and what it stands for. We saw that really it's an eyeful of glory. It's a vision of Christ who uh, is the tree of life and of the blessings that he brings. It's a parable in so many ways of who he is. But it's also, the Christmas tree is also what we can be in him. It's a vision of the richness of his glory through us. In fact, in Psalm 1, David compares the righteous, as most of you know, to a tree, a tree that's planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit uh, in its season. He's talking about the fruit of the Spirit through the Spirit of Christ. When we delight in the law of the Lord and when we're rooted in God's Word, according to Psalm 1, and during the Christmas season, there's one fruit on the tree of the righteous that most befits the season, and that is the third fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of peace which is the candle that we lit at the beginning of the service, the candle that stands for the peace that he brings. In fact, the very night that Christ was born, the angels sang about this. They said that the first and most important thing that his birth would make possible, as you see on the banner up there on my right, is peace. Glory to God in the highest, they sang. And first and foremost, here's what he came to bring, peace on earth. It's so central that it's all over the place, of course, in the carols. Sleep in heavenly peace. It started with the child. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Yeah, who came to bring peace on earth and mercy mild. On and on it goes. It's, it's foundational in a lot of ways to everything else. And that's why in every one of Paul's letters, he, Paul begins by saying, grace to you. That is, it all begins because of God's grace. But what's the first thing that that makes possible? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The foundational fruit. In so many ways, this fruit is the fruit that most befits the tree of the righteous, especially we'll see at Christmas time, the, the fruit of peace. Not, and, and the goal is not just to wire it on, uh, to pretend that we feel that way when it's not really there, though sometimes you've got to do that, but to, for, it to, for, for it to grow deeply from within us, from the inside out, watered by the Spirit as we bask in the sun in the light of his glory, which is what the Gospels are for. They help us bask in the sun so that that by the power of his word, we can grow, we can glow like him, especially at Christmas. He can bring us to bask in him because he's in you uh, to call it out of you. He's not just your example out there, but our enablement deep inside. 
This week and next as we launch into a very hurried sometimes and what can be a, you know, a harried season, I'd like to turn from ornamenting our trees to ornamenting ourselves in a way that befits the season, starting with the peace candle, the fruit of peace. You know, the Gospels uh, carry on this Christmas theme uh, of the angels, peace on earth. From the very beginning, Christ had the peace of God, and he brought it to so many others. Even to his mother, as we look at his early life peace, point A in your notes, uh, even there, when he was separated from his parents for three days at the age of 12, which is pretty amazing, the peace of Christ. I mean, just look at them in the verses in this famous story. Talk about a study and anxiety versus serenity. Again, it's Luke 2, verse 48. Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. I would have been too. I can't imagine losing a child for three days. But he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He had probably told them that many times before. He didn't respond anxiously or angrily to his parents' anxiety, which is a huge feat for a 12-year-old. There's so much here, but overall, from the beginning, Christ was, you might say, differentiated from the world around him just as we can be when we're centered in him, as we'll see, even in the stress of life, even in this season. He brought a non-anxious presence that didn't you know, absorb the emotional fields around him. He lived above the emotional climate of his environment. Wouldn't you love that? Some of you are gifted in this way. From the very beginning, he would stay connected with people while at the same time being separate from them. He was proactive in the right way to do the right thing at the right time because he wasn't reactive. He wasn't reactive to the reactivity of others. And all of who he was flowed out of this from the centeredness of his peace. Why were you looking for me? From the beginning, Christ was for them and with them, but he wasn't exactly, you know, of them. In the volatility of, that so often raged around him, he was like this step-down transformer, which we can be too. So much that it says it centered his mother. She went from this fearful questioning, we've been so anxious about you, that we just read about, to peaceful treasuring. Verse 51, she treasured in the end this experience within her. And how did he find his peace? What did he do to get it? What can we do to get it even in the stress of life? Well, it's in what he said at the heart of this story. Verse 49, again. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This early life story is the only story from his childhood. And it's here for a purpose because it says everything. It was the sign of his ultimate priority in the whole of his life from an early age. And that is to be centered in the father. I must be there. Without that, I've got nothing. He had such serenity. He was set apart from all that was so crazy all around him because in the arms of the father, he had such security. We see him here at the beginning of his life. 
And at the end of his life, we see him there in the temple again. But this time at the end of his life, he tells us what he did to get there into the temple. It was when he cleansed the temple. And then he said, this is supposed to be a house of, remember the story, prayer. It's the first thing that came to his mind when he thought of the Father's house. Of all the things that the temple was for, and it was for a whole lot of other things too, because that's what he did there, and that's how he got there again and again. Through worship and prayer, as he did through the instruments and the singers that were there and through his own meditations, And like he went on to tell the Samaritan woman, you can do that anywhere. He said the Father is seeking such people to be his worshipers who do it in spirit and truth anywhere. Here in the earliest story of Christ's life after his birth, at the age of 12, we see really the sign and the secret of the peace of Christ and of all else that came from him. And that is he was always in the Father's house, just like we can be. You might say that the first story from his biography gives like this this GPS coordinate of his location spiritually wherever he went geographically in an unforgettable image so we could locate ourselves there too to worship in spirit and truth in the house of the Father, the temple of the Holy Spirit, anywhere and everywhere. He was born to bring us home to bring us to God, as it says in 1 Peter 3, home to the Father, and he himself never left home. He was, like we sing, stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed, finding, as he promised, perfect, what? Peace and rest. It's like when David said, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. When he said that, he didn't mean that he wanted to live in the temple physically. He could not do that. He was the king. But that he wanted to stay there spiritually. David wanted one thing above everything, and and he got it kind of on and off like you and I do. Christ attained to it. Because the Father's house is the soul's true home, as one man said, at the still center of the turning world, the eye of the hurricane. It's where, like him, we too must be. We must seek to be. And where we can be, as we'll see, even in the stress of life. You see this all through his life, from the beginning to the middle to the end. From the first story of his life here in Luke 11 to the last story of his life in John 18, which we'll just touch on in a bit. And we could go anywhere in between to see it. One of my favorite examples is John 11, if you'll turn there as we turn to his midlife piece, point B in your notes. Someone said, really, the story of John 11, the story of Lazarus, is this. Someone said, quiet minds cannot be perplexed or frightened, but go on in fortune or misfortune at their own private pace like a clock during a thunderstorm. That's what Christ was. Christ had his own private pace, and so he had his own uh, private uh, peace. 
It says in verse six that when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He delayed two days. As I said, he was proactive in the right way because he wasn't reactive. He, didn't, he wasn't reactive to the reactivity of others. We, we see a crisis and we jump to our feet. He saw the crisis and, and, and he, he just stayed in his seat. In the face of like this urgent plea from friends who were like family to him. Because the need is not the call. All the voices vying for our attention are not the call. No, it's the still small voice. And even when the need is the call, it might not be the time, which was the case here. And how did he know it wasn't the time to go yet? How did he know that the sickness was not unto death, but to the glory of God, as he said in verse 47? Well, he was marching to a different drummer. He was following a quiet voice that gave him his own private pace, just as we can do through the voice of the Father. He was always in communion with the Father through worship and prayer just like we can hear from him in the same way. As he said six chapters earlier in John five nineteen, and I love these verses. They were like his modus operandi, how he operated. The son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does also in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him present tense all the time, all the things that he himself is doing. It's called communication through unbroken communion in the house of the Father. It's the guidance of the voice that he heard in the Father's house. And so he wasn't just jerked around by, you know, the, the, by the anxious expectations of others like we can be because his focus was on the Father just like ours can be even in the stress of life. And then two days later, uh, in John 11, he said, let us go to him, verse 7. That is, let us go to Lazarus. And he went, and he experienced the consequences of delaying two, uh, two whole days because Martha rushed out, verse 21, and she said, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. She was hysterical. And yet in his presence, in the space of a single verse, by the very next verse, verse 22, she changed, and so she said, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. And then he speaks for just two more verses, and she comes completely to herself, and she says, yes, Lord, I have believed, verse 27. With a word, he took her like out of the hurricane and into the eye, into the still center of the turning world where he always dwelt out of the you know, weeping village into what someone called the hallowed cathedral of his presence, into the temple of the Father, into an emotional field that was like this, this step-down transformer. Oh, we can be that way too. And then in verse 29, 39, we come to the tomb, and Jesus said, remove the stone. Talk about supreme confidence in God, especially when you consider the situation. I mean, here you have all the important Jews watching along with friends and villagers and who knows who else, many of whom were upset because he was late. And all of these people in front of all of them, he said, remove the stone, which translated roughly means dig him up. And you can imagine what some of them were thinking. They were even saying under their breath, I, I think he's finally lost it. This better be good. 
He wasn't worried in the slightest, and you can tell it by his prayer in verse 41. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. There it is again. That's the heart of it. You always hear me. I always hear you. We're together in all that we do. He'd been talking to the Father all along, and this connection, this communion was never broken because he was centered in him, stayed upon Jehovah. Remove the stone. So here we are. It's like if God doesn't come through, he's toast, which is often where we find him. He takes us to places where we'll be toast unless he comes through. That's what his temple can be like because then we really need to pray. But at the height of this test, Christ was at the height of his peace and so he was at the height of his power. He was a clear channel for the Father and he said, Lazarus, come forth with a loud voice. So powerful. Someone said if he hadn't said Lazarus, (laughs) if he hadn't said Lazarus, everyone buried there would have come forth. He, he chose like the perfect words in his serenity, a perfect economy of words. Three commands did it all. Verse 39, remove the stone. Verse 43, Lazarus, come forth. Verse 44, unbind him and let him go. If this passage is teaching anything, it's that he had his own private pace, like a clock during a thunderstorm, separated from the anxiety around him. He had his own private peace, from the beginning of the story when he dared to delay two days. I don't know about you, but what else can you say but hail the heaven-born prince of peace? Oh, Lord, I want to be like that. It's no wonder that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. How do you attain to that? Well, His end-of-life peace tells us, and we've already seen it to a good degree. It's the story of Christ in the garden, and there's not time to unpack it except to say that it's all about the unanxious presence of his peace, his unanxious presence of mind, and the impact of that on his spirit and all around him. But even more, it's about the source of his peace. Because in the first verse, John 18, 1, It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples into the garden. Spoken what words? Well, the words of the whole chapter that came just before, which is his great high priestly prayer. That whole chapter is a prayer, John 17. A prayer that shows such dependence on the Father, such rest in his arms. And so this means that when Jesus had spoken these words to the Father in heaven, he was ready for the garden. And in Luke we're told that once he got to the garden, before anything happened, he went to his knees again. It says, being in agony. Luke twenty-two forty-four. He was praying very fervently. The fear came back. He had laid the foundation in chapter 17, but he needed to go back to it again at the very beginning. And then he got up with such serenity, and the rest is history. From the sheathing of Peter's sword to the healing of the servant's ear that his sword cut off to the soldiers remember falling backward at the power of his word there in the garden he was centered they were like floored 
Where did that come from? We see this all through the Gospels from the beginning to the end that he's the Prince of Peace. Where did that come from? Well, Paul says that we too can find peace like he did as we turn briefly from the peace of Christ to Roman numeral two, our peace. Paul says, we all know this, be anxious for nothing, Philippians 4, 6, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the what of God? Peace of God which surpasses comprehension will keep your hearts and minds, will guard your hearts and minds, will center your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and through him will be centered in the Father. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Through worship and prayer in the temple of the Holy Spirit that we can now do everywhere. How do you find this even in the stress of life? Well, I experienced it in a pretty unusual way a few years back in uh, Buena, Buena Vista. And my motto ever since then has been, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. A couple of summers ago, some friends and I, we are in a Bible study up in Summit County, at least when we lived there, and on one week we would study the Bible at a coffee shop, the next week we'd go out and mountain bike or ski or whatever the season happened to be, and so one of those, a couple summers ago, we decided to bike Monarch Pass on the other side of Buena Vista, it would be a, a two-day outing for us, it's a 23-mile ride, 3,000 vertical feet, it's mostly above timberline, so you need to get back before noon, before the rain and the thunder come after lunch lest you like become sitting ducks for the lightning above timberline and so to do that you got to come up the night before so we did slept in a cabin and uh, got to the trailhead before dawn and very quickly it became kind of like this parable of life we uh, it was uh, pretty rugged terrain but some of the most beautiful writing uh, I've ever done we got to 14,000 feet and when, when we did we stopped at the top and looked at this 360 view of all the peaks surrounding us and someone said someone said it doesn't get much better than this does it <laughs> and it doesn't but just like life soon we were saying or feeling it doesn't get much worse than this does it <laughs> Watch out for changing weather. The ride was what they call an out and back, 12 miles out, 12 miles back, and we were coming back, and as we were, all of a sudden it all changed, and it started to rain, and then hail, and the wind, you know, started to blow, and then came the thunder and the lightning right above us, still far above tree line, and there we were, above timber line, and just like in life, you can't always get off when you want to. You just have to keep on keeping on, or you're going to be toast. Well, James Rohde was behind me, and I was in pretty good shape, but this guy, I mean, he's an extreme sport type. There are a lot of them up in Summit County, and so he is hardly winded, and he's taking this opportunity. He's right behind me, right behind my wheel, but it's to learn from a pastor. He's, lay, he, uh, he's like jabbering away behind me, asking me all these questions about my family, my theology, you know, what would I do in this kind of situation, how I would counsel him, and... Uh, and I'm there suck, you know, sucking air through a straw, as they say. 
And I've got some male ego, and so, so of course I'd never admit that I was too tired to answer your dumb questions. We need to get back. This is out and back. And then all of a sudden he says, by the way, Brian, if you feel your hair stand on end, that means you've got about three seconds before the lightning strikes. And uh, you need to fall off the bike, flat on the ground, and cover your ears. And I'm thinking, you can do all that in three seconds? I'm not even going to, I'm just going to die. And, and then Daryl Dingerson, he's another young buck who used to keep my testosterone going. And Daryl's in front of me. And he looks back and he says to me and the others that are behind us, he says, That's, this is about the dumbest thing I've done since high school. And, and I think, dumb for you? What is it for me? I'm 30 years older than you. And it was crazy. My, my legs felt like rubber and I really didn't know if I was going to make it. Though, of course, I didn't tell them that. And yet somehow... Deep down, I felt differentiated from it all. Yes, there were other emotions and there was complete exhaustion, but still, deep down, there was no desperation. It's not always the case with me, but that day, I felt like the Nike commercial, no fear. (laughs) And you know why? Well, the day before, there was a hymn that started to play in my mind out of nowhere. You know how when you can't get a song out of your head and you try to and you can't, you're sick of it? Well, that was going on. But I think God put it there because he knew what would be happening the day after when it would need to be there too. It's a hymn of worship that's a simple prayer, one that I couldn't get out of my mind the next day there above Timberline. Because truly, you can worship anywhere as you dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of your life. It's the one coordinate that matters, one that can be found anywhere, found in worship and prayer. I need thee every hour. Oh, most gracious Lord, no tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Now bless me, save me now, my Savior. I come to thee. And that day, that supplication became like this invocation of his presence in his temple that kept my heart and mind deep down on him. It just kept going on and on. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide or life is vain or I'm toast. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. It was like being in this bubble, this bubble of a temple. It was like wearing, you know, noise-canceling headphones on my heart, and all the noise went away. It was like this step-down transformer, the presence of his Spirit, that differentiated me from the weather around me. It was Emmanuel, God with us, God in us, who came to bring peace on earth, to bring it to us as we look to him in worship and prayer, who can bring us to the Father even uh, through the thunder. It was like Amy Carmichael prayed, the great missionary to the lepers in India. It's a great autobiography. She wrote a poem, Before the winds that blow do cease, teach me to dwell within thy calm. 
Before the pain is past in peace, give me my God to sing a psalm. Even that he's got to give to us, and he sure did with me. He put those thoughts in my mind. As John Calvin said, the only stronghold of safety is calling on his name. By so doing, we invoke his presence. Bottom line of Christ's peace in the stress of life. Well, Malcolm Muggeridge put it this way, and with this I'll close. He was the great British journalist and author. He wrote a spiritual autobiography called Confessions of a 20th Century Pilgrim. How do you survive the pilgrimage? A good part of it is this. In the stress of life, he wrote, it is always possible for us to wait on God. All we must do is this. Make a little clearing in the wild jungle of our human will. God knows that's what it can be. Make a little clearing in the wild jungle of our human will and then keep our rendezvous with our creator. He is sure to come. His presence falls like a comforting shadow and then we are at peace. Doesn't always happen, not inevitably, but more and more invariably it can as we make it a practice. Our tiny exercise in time is lost in the immensity of eternity. This experience is open to anyone at any time, fighting one's way onto a crowded commuter train or sleepless in an endless night, and then suddenly, peace. It's the bottom line of Christ's peace, who at an early age gave us the one coordinate in the universe that matters. When he said, I must be in my Father's house, whose house is a house of worship and prayer, a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, the soul's true home. He made it possible because he went to a tree to die for you and me that we might know welling up from within our tree that we might know peace on earth the peace that can come from the arms of the Father where he came to bring us for Christ also died for sins once for all 1 Peter 3.18 the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Father, we want to thank you that this is where Christ brings us. Father, I pray that you had, by your spirit, that you would bring us back there again and again. That we might stay centered there. That more and more we might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life as the whole reason why he came. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.